I'm Aria Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corem Podcast. Every week on the Corem Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome to another incredible episode of the Koran Podcast. Uh, we are continuing our season looking at Tanakh from all different angles and discovering new and exciting ways to understand the Bible. Aryeh, what have our listeners got in store for them today? Well, today we're going to be looking at how a understanding of life sciences and the world around us can enhance our understanding and appreciation of Tanakh. And there is no better person to do that with than Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin, who is founder and director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Bet Shemesh here in Israel, and is one of the authorities and renowned for his expertise in um, the rabbinic encounters with zoology um, and a, a Jewish understanding of the natural world. Yes, indeed. Uh, it was a real treat to speak with Rabbi Dr. Slefkin. We're very grateful he gave us some time. Um, and it's quite appropriate that this episode is being released the week of Parashat Shemini, uh, which discusses the different kosher and non-kosher animals, which is a topic that Rabbi Slefkin has done uh, a great deal of research and writing on. Um, so let's jump straight in. We're delighted to be joined now by Rabbi Natan Slifkin, who is the director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Beit Shemesh in Israel. Uh, Rabbi Slifkin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure to be joining you. This season, uh, we're focusing on Tanakh uh, and looking at different ways of learning and understanding uh, the Bible. Um, and so we're very excited uh, to jump into our conversation with you. Um, but for our listeners who maybe aren't uh, as familiar um, could you just explain very quickly uh, how you got the moniker, the zoo rabbi? So I've had a, a lifelong fascination for uh, exotic animals. You know, my parents took me to the zoo when I was five, picked me up when I was 12. And uh, ever since then, I've been you know, keeping all kinds of weird and wonderful creatures. And when I started Yeshiva, I started um, looking into, you know, what does the Torah have to say about the animal kingdom? And I found this incredible wealth of material that I started uh, writing about and teaching about running uh, education programs for Jewish communities at different zoos around the world, and eventually opening the Biblical Museum of Natural History near Bet Shemesh, which is kind of a combination of a, a zoo and a natural history museum. And, I mean, can you tell us, tell us a little bit about, I guess, you mentioned the museum, tell us a about the museum and sort of what's the, the thinking behind it, the rationale, the ideology of the museum? So uh, the museum, which is, you know, the, 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 the books and the museum are really, you know, two parts of the same mission. It's um, teaching people about the relationship between Judaism and the natural world, which itself includes many different topics. It's drawing inspiration from the beauty and wonder of the natural world. It's learning to identify the different animals in Tanakh and, and in the Talmud and Midrash and uh, understanding the symbolism that they, uh, that they present and also uh, resolving uh, potential conflicts uh, between Judaism and, and, and natural history. Okay, we'll, we'll dive into, into sort of, uh, you know, what, how we interpret and understand those things in, in a moment. Um, but I think more generally, what, what does this, why do we need a solid understanding of the natural world? Sort of what benefit do we get? from having a solid understanding of the natural world and natural history? Um, and how does that sort of enhance 
or how does that interplay with our religious lives? So there's a few aspects of it. I mean, firstly, uh, in terms of drawing inspiration, you know, Rambam famously says that the way one attains both love and awe of God is by contemplating the wonder of the natural world. And it's a, a theme that runs tr- throughout Tanakh. You know, the idea of, of drawing inspiration from, you know, Marabu ma'asecha Hashem, ma'gadlu ma'asecha Hashem. Is the natural world is something that, that's intended to, that should be filling us with, with religious awe. Um, another aspect is, you know, understanding the Torah. There's many parts of the Torah certainly uh, are difficult to understand, especially today when many people are very much cut off from the natural world of the Bible. There's many parts uh, of the Torah in terms of whether it's, it's Nach or, or, or Gemara, uh, whether it's, you know, um, uh, Halacha or Hashkafa. There's, there's many different things that are very difficult to understand unless you know what the animals are being described, the phenomena being described. So that's uh, another role of, uh, of this educational mission. And, and finally, there's another aspect which we bring very much to the fore in the museum, which is that there's many different nations in the world. And every nation has the animals that are part of its cultural heritage. Right? If you're an Aboriginal tribesman from Australia, then the animals that are part of your cultural heritage are you know, koalas and kangaroos and emus. Whereas if you're an Inuk from Alaska, then the animals that are part of your cultural heritage will be seals and, and, and killer whales and salmon. But as Jews, what are the animals that are part of our cultural heritage? You know, it's not the gefilte fish and the chicken soup. In fact, you don't find a single reference to chickens in Tanakh because chickens hadn't yet been invented, right? Chickens were made in China, right? The, uh, the ancient Chinese took Asian jungle fowl, domesticated them, transformed them into uh, dom- domestic chickens, which were then spread around the world. But that hadn't yet happened in biblical times. So learning about the animals of Tanakh, which are the animals of our cultural heritage, right? you, know, you know, the lions and the bears and the leopards and the gazelles, you know, that's part of, of our connection to the land of Israel. So there's a whole diff- there's, there's, there's many different aspects of, the, uh, of this mission of learning about the connection between Judaism and the natural world. Amazing. I mean, to, I guess to take maybe one example, you know, as we're recording, we're towards the end of Sefer Shemot and uh, in the descriptions of the Mishkan and, you know, in, in, a, in a few, you know, a number of the research that you've done, different results of that research can be found in Koren Chumashim and the uh, Noe edition Koren Tamba Bavli, talking about, you know, what were some of the different materials that were used? For example, you know, what is the Tachash? And which you've written about in a few different places. Now, what, what application do the you know do these findings have? Um, and can you give some other examples? Well, other examples would be relevant to you know just in general, you know, understanding the symbolism. Uh, you know, you have the famous Mishnah in Perkei Avot. You know, Ratzketzvi, Kal Kanesher, Gibor Kari, Az So only if you really understand, you know, what these animals what these animals are, do you understand the symbolism they're trying to give over. You know, I saw uh, one um, one Engl- one uh, children's book about that Mishnah, not published by Cohen, <laughs> by a different publisher, which they, they didn't know what the animals were, and they were struggling to ex- explain what Kal Kanesher meant. And the reason why they were struggling is that they, they, didn't, they were getting the wrong bird. <laughs> right? But when you know what the bird is, that it's a, a griffin vulture, and you understand how the griffin vulture flies, 
that they, you know, soar effortlessly up on the thermals with their gigantic wingspan. You know, wings that are so wide and broad that they never need to flap them. They just soar effortlessly up on the thermals. And you realize what the mission is telling us, which is that when we rise up to serve God, it should also be with this air of effortlessness, not with a moan and a groan and a kvetch, but, you know, with a spring in our step. Sure, pleasure to do it. So there's an example where you see, you know, in order to understand um, what the Mishnah is teaching us, you have to really understand what these animals are and what they do. Obviously, um, there's also uh, considerable halachic ramifications. In, in fact, one area that I explored in the introduction to the, uh, the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom is one that, that really nobody has ever, I uh, feel, done before, which is that looking at not the identities or, or of a specific animals, but a broader perspective. What is the classification system uh, the taxonomic system of the Torah. How does that differ from, from modern zoology? And that's something which has enormous ramifications uh, for Cassius, uh, specifically in the case of birds, where the current practice is to, uh, to only eat a bird if there's a Masora for it. But what does it mean to have a Masora for that type of bird? Are we talking about for that breed of bird, for that subspecies of bird, for that species of bird? You know, and understanding that type, type of thing, you know, you have to understand you know, what does taxonomy mean and how does Torah taxonomy differ from zoological taxonomy. So these are, you know, just uh, some of the ramifications of this topic. I mean, if, we could, if we could go back uh, just a moment, I think, you know, the, your, your identification of, of the Tachash um, is something very, very interesting. I mean, could you just give us, again, you know, our, our listeners can, can find it. Uh, in, in all sorts of places, whether it's Karen, Karen uh, Chumashim, the Talmud uh, Bavli, your own website, uh, your own books. Um, but could you just give us like a, a, just a very, very quick introduction, a background into sort of what the debate was surrounding the Tachash and sort of what your, um, what your conclusions were? Right. Well, it's something which my thinking on this evolved. In other words, um, many years ago when I first started on that topic, so my idea was, okay, you look at all the clues and you have the Gemara and you, you put them together and you have the Gemara describing the Tachash as a multicolored animal with a single horn in the center of its forehead. And the only, uh, and the only animal that matches all those descriptions is certain subspecies of giraffe, which have a, a third central horn in the center of their forehead. But, you know, as my thinking in this topic matured, I realized that's not really a reasonable approach, especially because if you're describing a giraffe, then the most obvious way you would describe it as being the animal that's really tall with a really long neck. <laughs> and that's the description you'd give. And, and then, I'd, you know, looking at it more carefully, I realized that if you look at Hazal, there's actually all kinds of different opinions as to what the Tachash is. Uh, you know, very, very diverse opinions. Uh, and, you know, from, from some opinions in Chazal, you know, identified it as a unicorn, but others identified it as a small animal in the weasel family. And the Targum Shivim, the Septuagint, identifies it as a type of dye. And this that sheer diversity of opinions tells you that they really didn't, didn't know what it was. And it was really, you know, a lot of, of speculation going on. Um, and so then, you know, looking at the fact, you know, just going back to basics, looking at what do we have in Tanakh? The only references we have in Tanakh to Tachash are that there's Orot Tachashim, Tachash hides used to decorate the Mishkan. And we have reference to the Jewish people in the wilderness where uh, being, being shod, right, having footwear made out of the skins of Tachash. Now, it's the latter thing that led to the name Tachash being used for the dugong. You know what a dugong is? Kind of like a manatee, right? This uh, kind of in between a seal and a whale. 
right, which the uh, Bedouin sometimes used to make footwear from. And that's why at an early stage, the Latin name of the, uh, the dugong was Halicor Tabernaculum, after the tabernacle. And, and even in modern Hebrew, the dugong is often referred to as a tachash. But again, if you look at the verses, it's talking about the footwear of tachash in the context of something beautiful, right? That the, uh, the, the, the God's saying about how the, the Jewish people had all the finest jewelry and the finest silk clothing and tachash shoes. That's not, not talking about the kind of tachash footwear that the Bedouin use. What they're using tachash for is uh, thick. You know, the, the dugong is very, very thick, rubbery skin. It's the kind of thing you'd use for making, you know, tough uh, footwear, you know, uh, bloodstone, bloodstones or timberland boots that can withstand the rigors of the desert, right? But that's not what uh, that's not what the Torah is speaking about in that verse. It's talking about the finest things. So, given that tachash is something that's used for very fancy footwear, we have to look further afield. And there was a scholar who pointed out that the word tachash in certain Middle Eastern dialects refers to beadwork. It's a way of processing leather, decorating it with beads. And that was exactly used for fancy footwear. We found that King Tut was buried with his royal shoes, and that's exactly what it was made of. And, and the Pasuk itself, you know, we assume that Tachash is an animal, but, but the Pasuk doesn't actually say that. Oro Tachashim might just be leather in the, in the style of Tachash, just like the Septuagint just, and just explains it to refer to dyed leather. So the tachash may not be an animal at all. It may just refer to beadwork, which is certainly, you know, not as exciting as a multicolored <laughs> unicorn, but it's uh, something that fits in with the pasukim better. And really, you know, this ties in with uh, something that comes up in other, other contexts, that people often only are drawn to the more exciting explanations of things, um, but they're not necessarily the most reasonable explanations. Like the famous Rashi about uh, discussing when the plague of frogs in Egypt, Fatal Hatsfardea, the frog came up, it says it in the singular. Why does it say it in the singular? So everyone knows that Rashi says because it was one frog and they hit it and it miraculously turned into millions of frogs. But when you ask people, does Rashi say anything else? People don't have an answer. But Rashi actually does say something else. He says, he says that the idea of there being one frog that magically turned into millions is the Druish, but the pshat is that it's a collective noun. That when you have a lot of frogs in a plague, it's collectively referred to in the singular. But that's not so exciting, so most people don't remember that Rashi says that as the Peshat. Uh, you, <clears throat> you, you bring up like another interesting point as well. There, there does seem to be, I mean, it's certainly, you know, I remember growing up, it's perhaps a, uh, a very immature way of thinking. Um, if I can, I mean, I'm not sure that's the best word, but that it's um, like we want to try and sort of fit the world around us to... Um, like comply with our, our like basic understanding of Tanakh, of Torah, of Gemara, whatever it is, even if it doesn't make sense. Whereas I think mm -hmm. what you're saying is that like, no, it should be the other way around. Like the, the Tanakh, I mean, there are certainly like, there are miracles and, and uh, everything in, in the Torah, but you know, not everything was a miracle. That sort of the world that, that B'nai Israel existed in still worked within, you know, natural uh, well, that's getting into a you know a whole other topic, the clash between rationalism and mysticism, which uh, you know have been also been involved in different <laughs> ways of do we prefer to see God working through nature or do we prefer God as working through miracles? But in, in terms of uh, the zoology, it's just you know often recognizing that uh, the zoological phenomenon being described in Tanakh in Chazal may be a lot more 
you know, ordinary uh, than some of the more fantastical explanations that have been proposed over history. Not that they're still not amazing phenomenon. You know, I find, you know, but just, you know, Baruch Inafshi or various Pesukim speaking about phenomena in the natural world uh, could be extraordinary. Just, just, just last week on, on Friday, um, we saw the uh, stork migration passed by my house in Ramat Beit Shemesh. And not only is it an incredible sight, you know, these gigantic birds circling overhead, you know, part of half a million storks that cross over Israel every year. But the fact that that's something that Yermia speaks about, you know, 3,000 years ago, Yermia speaks about the, uh, the stork migration. And thousands of years later, you know, our des- his descendants were living in Israel, still seeing the same annual phenomenon in the natural world. I just find that to be something e- extraordinary. Um, I mean, just talking about, um, I guess, things that we find almost on our doorstep. Um, I also wanted to ask you in terms of, um, I mean, you wrote about last week online, you know, with the recent um, oil spill um, and the effects that it's having on the coast, there was a, a whale that washed up um, on, right. on, on the coast and you posted that you sort of went to see it and to find that. How was that an example of sort of how we can bring Torah to what we find in the natural world and have an understanding of that? Right. So uh, that was really a unique experience. Um, I mean, I've been whale watching in, uh, in Alaska, in California, but you just get a glimpse of the whale here. This was, you know, a, a young whale, a complete whale, a 55 foot uh, finback whale that washed up in the coast near Ashdod. Uh, what I was fascinated at was in telling people about it. I mean, the experience itself was amazing, you know, seeing this enormous creature, seeing, touching this gigantic creature. What I found fascinating speaking to people about it is that people saying, really, there were whales in the Mediterranean? And I'm like, well, of course there are. I mean, you know, it's in Barkinafshi, where, where after saying, Hashem, how manifold are your works, God, then it speaks about all the creatures in the sea, and it says, Livyatanzeyotzatelasachekbo this leviathan that's sporting in the sea, right? It was, there's references in Tanakh to whales in the sea. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like, similarly, you know, visitors to the museum are often, you know, shocked to learn that there were lions in this part of the world. Like, what do you mean? Tanakh talks, you know, endlessly about lions. You know, what do you think they were talking about? So I find it fascinating that people don't realize that these animals were, and in some cases still are in this part of the world. Right. I mean, so I've I've been fortunate enough to visit the museum a couple of times, both the old premises and and the brand the brand new the brand new facility as well. And something that like again, like you're we're aware, you know, that the Tanakh talks about lions and bears and um, whatever else uh, Dorothy went looking for. Um, but the you know the, there were bears in Israel up until like the 20th century, right? There was. Yep, that's right. Right, and so like just having even just like a cursory understanding or cursory sort of familiarity with our surroundings here we're not talking about like massive grizzly bears that you'd find you know up in up in canada or whatever we're talking about um you know but like real you know real bears the bears that came out with the sort of alicia summons right um exactly it's funny you know a few years ago i i was uh i got into many one of amongst the many arguments i've gotten into over the years (laughs) (laughs) are with people who objected to my uh identification of the shafan of tanakh as being the hyrax now, you know, it's very obvious that the Shafan is the Hyrax. You know, when you have the Pasuk, Harim HaGavohim Le'elim, Salaim Marcel Shfanim, the high hills are for the Ibex, the rocks are a hiding place for the Shafan. So then it's perfectly obvious that that Pasuk is speaking about Ein Gedi. David HaMelech was in Ein Gedi. He spent time there, and that's exactly where you see the Ibex on the hills. And, uh, and also in Ein Gedi, you see little furry animals hiding in rocks, which are the Hyraxes. You know, some people got very upset with that 
because there were um, some of the great medieval Torah scholars that were shown him who identified the Shafan as a rabbit. To which the response is, well, you know, there's no rabbits in this part of the world and rabbits don't hide in rocks. The reason why they thought Shafan was a rabbit was that they lived in Europe where they weren't familiar with hyraxes and the name Shafan was transposed into the, the closest thing they had, which was the rabbit. So uh, that's you know, based on the, on the premise that the animals of Tanakh are the animals from the part of the world where Tanakh was written. We don't have kangaroos or, or penguins or polar bears in Tanakh. Tanakh takes place in a particular part of the world, and therefore it will refer to animals from that part of the world. So one of the people I was arguing with about that said, you know, in an effort to prove to me that that's not true, says, what do you mean? Tanakh speaks about whales. There's no whales in that part of the world. <laughs> like, well, of course there are. <laughs> you know, of course there are whales in the Mediterranean. There's not so many now because many of them have been, unfortunately, um, died off. Either they were hunted or they died off due to the tremendous pollution. Uh, but of course there are whales. And every so often, one of them will, will wash up on the shore. And absolutely, people here were familiar with them. Right, and, and you know, and, and as of, you know, last week you, you were standing on the beach next to uh, next to other had unfortunately washed up, and it also brings up, I mean, just you know, a personal reflection. Sort of when I, one of my first encounters with, um, you know, your writing and, and your research um, came about. I was researching, uh, giving a shiur um, about about this interplay between Torah and science, and sort of the uh, you know ha- how we can understand. Um, you know instances where Chazal seemingly sort of get the science wrong, um, and I, I read your uh, your piece um, about uh, elephants can't jump. Um, right. And there's it just for, for those less familiar, there's you know there's a the, the Gemara talks about how a person can acquire large animals, and there's a discussion in the Tosfot mm-hmm. about sort of the way you you acquire an elephant is you hang its food up in the tree. Uh, and you make it jump up in the air. But of course, as we know, elephants can't jump. If they were to try and do so, it would would shatter their legs. Um, So I suppose, I mean, are there any examples or other examples you can think of um, where there are like, there are real life sort of practical differences, real life nafgaminas to our understanding of of the ancient world and our identification of of the creatures of Tanakh. And you've spoken about the Hyrax and the Shafan and you've spoken about uh, the Tachash. I mean, they're all very interesting, but they don't really have any practical um, uh, implications on our on our on our lives necessarily. Maybe one day they will. Um, but are there any sort of real life practical applications you can think of? Well, the only real halachas nowadays, you know, involving animals are, are kashrus. And you know, previously I mentioned where birds is an example. Um, locusts would be another example, where you know the Torah clearly says that certain types of grasshoppers are kosher. Um, all the uh, Many Jewish communities have a tradition as to which type of locust it is, right? The, the, the Yemenites, the Algerians, the Moroccans, right? We have an exhibit at the museum, a live exhibit of all these locusts. But there are people who say that, well, no, the Ashkenazi tradition is not to eat locusts, right? Uh, and therefore, we can't eat them. And this is being very practical now, especially, uh, you know, as, as the world population increases, it's not so uh, viable to produce enough protein from all the beef and cattle. So the food technology is heading in the direction of insect protein. Right, insects can turn plant matter into protein much more, vastly more efficiently than cows can. So already there's a startup in Israel producing protein powder from locusts and trying to get a hersha. So a lot of people say, what do you mean? Um, that the Ashkenaz tradition is not to eat locusts. But if you look into it carefully, the history of it, you'll see what's going on. 
which is that there was no there was no Ashkenaz tradition not to eat locusts, like there was an Ashkenaz tradition not to eat kidney oat and Pesach. Rather, there just weren't any locusts in Ashkenaz. Right? It's, in other words, it's not a, a tradition against it. So it's not like, for example, with storks. So there was a particular community in Europe that had a that for so, for some inexplicable reason had a Masora to eat storks. Now you couldn't adopt that tradition because everybody else had a very strong tradition that the stork is the chassidah of the Torah, listed as being a non-kosher bird. So, so since we have, you know, a, a, a positive negative tradition, right, a positive tradition that the stork is not kosher, you can't go and adopt someone else's tradition that it is kosher. But with locusts, there was no positive negative tradition. And there's no tradition that locusts are not kosher. There just weren't any locusts. It was just an absence of a tradition uh, because there weren't any locusts in Europe. So in light of that, it should be like with any bird, where if you don't have a Masoa either way, you can adopt the Masoa from those who do have it. So that's, you know, an argument to, uh, for, to permit eating locusts. Um, moving, I guess, uh, I, I wouldn't say, uh, I guess moving away from the current natural world, let's say, for lack of a better uh, way of saying it. Mm-hmm. So if we walk through, Alex and I both are recording uh, from here in Modian, and if we walk through our local park, uh, the uh, municipality has uh, decorated different parts of the area with statues of different dinosaurs. And uh, by some of them, the facts and dates have been scratched out by certain visitors to the park. So you know, with that in mind, how do we reconcile what we see as scientific, scientific discovery with different understanding and, and interpretations of, of what's written in the Torah? Well, you know me, I try to stay away from controversial topics. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, what do you call a dinosaur? What do you call a dinosaur that believes in his own existence? An Apicorosaurus. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So in my writings, you know, obviously we have uh, we have Rambam and uh, and many others who say that the account of creation is not to be taken literally. Right, um, and uh, according to Rambam, it's not even that six days is six eras. It's that the days don't even refer to any kind of sequential time period. You know, it's, it's completely a, a non-historic account that's teaching us theological lessons and ethical monotheism. Um, but obviously, uh, while it's very important for many people in the modern world to, to grapple with these questions and to come up with, with solutions for them, for other people, it's equally important for them to avoid all these kinds of questions and not have to think about them. So here's an interesting difference between, say, books and a museum. Which is in, in books, which is you know a product that people buy individually. So I can have books which deal with these topics and books which stay away from these topics. But with a museum as being you know a single entity that all types of different people visit. So what we have to do is just stay away from those topics entirely, because um, you know obviously if we had an, an exhibit in the museum about uh, with you know with dinosaur skeletons or or an exhibit on evolution or on uh, resolving, uh, discussing conflicts between Hazal and science. So an, an enormous uh, part of our visitors simply wouldn't come. And it's very important to us that those visitors come. We feel that they gain a tremendous amount from the museum. So this is really, you know, I, I do have a skeleton in my closet, and it's a, a dinosaur skeleton, and it's <laughs> going to remain in my closet at home. Uh, not something I'm going to uh, be putting on exhibit in the museum. Um, because in a museum, you have to be sensitive to the uh, educational needs uh, of different audiences. So I've been drawing 
you know, so as you know, in the past, my writings on this topic have aroused a little bit of controversy and opposition, just a little bit. So, um, so now in the uh, in the museum, I've really tried to you know draw a very strong line uh, between the different types of work that I do. Um, I have the books that I write. My writings are on resolving conflicts between terror and science, such as the Challenge of Creation and Sacred Monsters, which was published with Cohen recently in a Hebrew edition, Yitzuri Hapele, and uh, and that's where I really, you know, have free license to discuss things. And then I have the other projects like the museum, but also the book, you know, the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom, which was co-published between Cohen and the OU. And um, we felt that for that kind of book, it was important to stay away from topics that could alienate certain audiences. Um, so I suppose, I mean, a question now, I mentioned before that I, I've been fortunate enough to, to visit the museum, both uh, the old premises and the new one, which I understand there was, uh, you know, certain delays and, and speed bumps caused by, by the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. But it's open now, I believe, correct? Yes, it is. We just were finally allowed to open this week. Fantastic. Um, and so anyone who has the opportunity, you know, please go when our listeners overseas are able to come and visit Israel. One of the many stops you should make is, is to the museum. Um, but so how, how... They, don't, they don't have to be in Israel. They don't have to be in Israel. We do uh, live online tours for institutions also. In fact, we did a lot of those during the pandemic for uh, in schools and schools and communities around the world. Oh, excellent. And so we'll, we'll put a link to, uh, to the website and yep. perhaps some contact details in, in the show notes. Um, but so how is the museum sort of a culmination of all of your work um, in terms of, you know, trying to uh, synthesize sort of rationalism and Judaism or, you know, show how those conflicts can work together? And I suppose then the question that people should always be asking is, is what's next? So really the museum is, the museum gives me the ability to take all this, this material that I was uh, learning about and teaching about and writing about and present it in a really experiential way that people, you can actually, you know, see the animals in the flesh. Uh, the museum, as, as you know from being here, it's very hands-on. You can even, really even touch things, and that makes everything, you know, much more powerful. Um, also, in terms of developing the museum, and especially, you know, the move to the new place with all different halls, it really gave me an opportunity uh, to conceptualize how, how to organize all the different topics. Um, so, in, in the new building, we have the Hall of Wonders, Olam de Flaot Habria, dedicated to the, just the topic of drawing inspiration from the weirdest and most wonderful and most beautiful animals of the natural world. Uh, we have the uh, auditorium where the tour begins, which I wanted to call the Hall of Biogeography, and that was nixed because nobody knew what the word biogeography meant. But really, it is the most fundamental term to biblical natural history. Biogeography is the idea that different animals live in different places which is really fundamental to this topic. It's realizing that the animals of Tanakh are the animals from the region of the land of Israel and not the animals from Europe or Australia or America. Uh, And then we have the Hall of Biblical Wildlife uh, presenting the larger animals from Tanakh. We have the Hall of of Kosher Classification, the Hall of Shofas, the Hall of Small Animals, the Serpentarium. So that really give an opportunity you know, to think about how this material you know, is, is going to be organized in terms of understanding the different topics, the different aspects of Torah's connection to the natural world. Um, and also, you know, like I said, you know, making it a very you know, hands-on experience. You know, so in the encyclopedia, which was the only color book I've done, so there I was able to present beautiful photos. But the, uh, 
which in some cases can be, uh, there's no replacement for those. You're able to, photos can show certain aspects of animal behavior, but the museum gives an opportunity to show animals in the flesh, whether it's taxidermy models or live animals. And that's, you know, a whole different dimension. And I mean, I guess something slightly maybe different as well. I mean, it's amazing to hear around the museum. Um, just, I guess, one thing I wanted to ask, um, which we may or may not include. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention, I remember reading, I mean, this is a while ago when I, when I was in Yeshiva, going back, I don't know, 15 years ago, I remember reading one of the things that stood out to me that you'd written was about whether Binyamin was a werewolf. And <laughs> I'm just wondering yes. how sort of that, that kind of consideration, how does that approach, you know, I, I could learn through Sefer Bereshit in a number of different ways and using different Mepharshim. How does sort of that exploration of Binyamin enhance or help our understanding of, you know, safe operation or the narratives there? Oh, I don't think it does. <laughs> um, how I came on to what, what I think the importance of, I don't think Benjamin was a werewolf, let me clarify that. Uh, but I just, that was an example of you know, a, a topic that came up in, you know, discussing all these, these mythical creatures, which we find discussions of either in Chazal or in later sources, as in the case of Benjamin being a werewolf and the Rishonim. And it is just it's important to understand how to approach these topics. What do you do when you come across something uh, that just does not fit with what we know of the natural world? And how does it affect things if that is a, a Pasuk or a Gemara or a statement by a, by a Rishon? Uh, what are the different ways to understand it? And so, you know, the will is just an example of that because many people, again, there's, there's, there's people who have the luxury of being uh, totally isolated from the modern world and all the challenges that it raises for, for traditional understandings of Judaism. But many of us are exposed to the, natural, to the wider world and we know about the natural sciences. And when we come across something in a, in a Torah work, in a rabbinic work, describing a creature that we just don't believe exists, right? it can be a cause of, uh, of tremendous stress. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, that's what got me into this topic in the first place. You know, um, it was 25 years ago. I was in Yeshiva. I was learning the, uh, I was learning the Mishnah about Azkanomer, be as brazen as a leopard. And uh, the Baratanur says that the leopard is a hybrid of a lion with a wild boar. Now, I was very upset about to eat that. So I went over to Marsh Yeshiva and he said, well, you know, if the Baratanur says it, it must be true. <laughs> and now, now I knew that this Marsh Yeshiva, you know, he had actually been to grammar school in England, I said, you know, does the Rosh Hashiva believe that a leopard is a hybrid of a, of a lion and a wild boar? And he was like, oh, don't ask me. <laughs> go and ask Rufheim Kanievsky. So I wasn't willing to go and ask Rufheim Kanievsky because Rufheim Kanievsky would just say, yes, if the Bautanur says it, it must be true. <laughs> um, but then, you know, looking around, finding the rationalist approach of, of, of the Gaonim and Rambam and many others who said that um, know that these you don't have to believe that these things are true, and then learning more about history and realizing that because people described things like this, it doesn't mean they were foolish or stupid in any way, and that you have to measure, you know, measure knowledge by what was known at the time, and you see how people, you know, highly intelligent people, high, very wise people, what they believe will be determined by the information that is available to them and that is given to them. So, um, you know, that's something that helped me come to, come, to come to terms with these topics in which uh, I shared in these books to a uh, mixed response. I'm Robert Lifkin. I, this has been you know, absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we're going to end the interview here. Otherwise, we'll be here for hours and hours more. Um, as we said, you know, we'll try and link to as much as we possibly can 
uh, in our show notes so listeners can can go and uh, fall down a rabbit hole a hyrax a hyrax sorry yes fall down a hyrax hole we're here in Israel <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of just just reading, looking at and, and reading through everything you've done but thank you so much for joining us it's been uh, really fascinating and you know thank the, you I think you know your your viewpoint is one that we certainly share I'm saying like un- understanding the things in, in uh, just you know people the Mepharshim the Roshanim the Chazal whoever were limited by what they knew about the world around them and, and there's so much out there and, and sort of just what you've done in your in your books and the museum um, is really like Thank you but remember they, they were limited in what they knew but they knew so much more about the natural world that surrounded them here in Israel than people do today they, Exactly I mean there you go and, and so you know I highly recommend everyone you know read your books follow your website read your blog uh, everything else that you're doing um, and you know thank you so so much for joining us and we'll have to have you join us again soon thank you it was a pleasure well that's all for this episode of the Corin podcast uh, Alex if you want to get in touch with us how can they do so you can reach us on email that's podcast at corinpub.com or we're on all social media at Corin Publishers of course you can always visit our website www.corinpub.com make sure you check out all of Rabbi Slifkin's uh, writings and websites and the links to which are all in the show notes you can get 10% off Rabbi Slifkin's book the Torah Encyclopedia of the Animal Kingdom with promo code podcast at checkout um, and that will give you 10% off your entire order at at www.corenpub.com.